Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us many great and precious promises that through these you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up the word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. As the scriptures state, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto our path. It is in the light of your word that we come to understand light, as in other words, that we only know that which is true when we understand it within the framework of your divine revelation in the scriptures. That we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that we are to uh, we are to have a an understanding of your word that enables us to understand the world around us. That that we recognize that your word is more important than our experiences. That we are to interpret your word on the basis of your word, and not on the basis of our limited understanding, or our limited framework or our own experience, that your word is that which governs all other things. So now, Father, as we look at your word, and we look at the prophecies regarding a Messiah, we pray that we may be encouraged as we learn more about your eternal plan of salvation and what you uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we began a Christmas special, three-week Christmas special, last week, this week, and next week. And the focus this week is on the line of David. Last week we looked at the promised seed, the seed of the woman, tracing from the original promise, the first promise of salvation, plan of salvation in Genesis 3.15, what the early church fathers called the Proto-Evangelium, the first indication of the good news of the gospel. And so we continue that because there are all of these different promises, and um, next year I'll deal with others that I have just skipped over for uh, time reasons. But it's it's fascinating to see how these uh, prophecies were given and how they were fulfilled. So we began last time talking about the test for a prophet in the Old Testament. Just what is a prophet? And how do you know that a prophet is really a prophet and not just somebody who goes around saying, well, God told me? I mean, we have a lot of people, a lot of pastors who say, well, God told me. Well, they're, unless they're talking about what God told them in the Bible, they're wrong. God is not speaking today other than through his word. And there was a test in the Old Testament because you had lots of false prophets who tried to uh, claim God validating uh, their message and who they were uh, when that wasn't the case at all. And so we reviewed some of these last time, and I pointed out that a prophet's message had to uh, conform to other accepted scripture. It could not contradict in any detail any other accepted scripture. It had to conform. It could not come along and say, for example, uh, the example that's used in Deuteronomy 13, uh, let's go worship these other gods as well. That's how you would know that it was a false prophet, that their message contradicted, accepted, revealed scripture. So we looked at that in Deuteronomy 13, and in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22, every detail, even the minutest detail, had to come true exactly as the prophet described it uh, under literal interpretation. And so it could not vary in the least. 
Third, the penalty for failure was death penalty. God was not going to allow anyone to just walk around and claim that they were his mouthpiece. If they did and they were not, then they were to be executed after they were examined under the law of Moses. So that's why when we come to the Scripture and we look at prophecy, this is prophecy that comes from God and is not just something manufactured by the imagination of uh, some people. Prophecy itself is the impartation or the disclosure of information from a supernatural source. That is, it comes either directly from God or through one of his angels. The word angel means messenger. So one of his angels or the angel of the Lord uh, to mortals, to the prophets, to the apostles, uh, who cannot discover this knowledge through any finite human means. They can't get there through the use of logic. They can't, can't get there through the re- use of reason. They can't get there on the basis of their experience. They have to understand it within the framework of God's Word, and God's Word gives us the examples within it of how uh, scriptures and prophecies are interpreted. When we look at these prophecies, one of the things we understand is that they were understood for many centuries to be messianic prophecies. But what happened later on is that you have uh, you have in Judaism the rise of an extremely hostile interpretation of these messianic uh, prophecies because they clearly point to Jesus. And so there were intentional movements among the rabbis in the late first century and up through even modern times where they try to reinterpret, and in some cases they change the vowels in the words so that it would either render the passage meaningless or it would destroy the messianic uh, understanding of, of the passage. So God has chosen these Old Testament prophets to make his word known to us and to give precise and accurate information about the future which is always accurate. The reason is because God is a living, eternal, omniscient God. He knows all things. He knows the past. He knows the future. He knows the present. Everything in God's creation and everything that happens in human history has been known by God forever. The reason we say that is, and when we understand what omniscience means, it means God does, God never, uh, never gains knowledge and he never loses knowledge. So there's nothing that happens that God wasn't aware of for all of eternity. He is always aware of everything. And many times in the scripture, when Israel was turning to idols, God would somewhat sarcastically say, well, go ask those idols of wood and gold and silver uh, if they can tell you the future. And always he comes back emphasizes, emphasizing his uniqueness. For example, in Isaiah 41, 21 to 23, he says, start, I'll just start in 22, he says, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. In other words, what has happened in the past and what its consequences will be in the future. In verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil that we may uh, be dismayed and see it together. So God is always challenging them, Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Why does he say that? Because he states in verse 9 before that, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Because of his omniscience, he can declare with absolute certainty what will happen. And then we looked at the briefly looked at the passage in Luke twenty four twenty six to twenty seven, after the resurrection, after Jesus has appeared to his disciples, there are two of the 
other disciples, not of the of the twelve, but others, who are walking home and they're talking to each other about what has happened over the last three days with the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and hearing what the other apostles had said about uh, about seeing Christ alive. And they, they're just trying to put it together. They're trying to process that in light of what they know. And they're joined by this figure who has somewhat cloaked his identity so they don't recognize him as the resurrected Jesus. And he interrupts them and he says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, Moses who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he said, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, not some of the prophets, but all the prophets. In other words, what Jesus is, is articulating here is a fundamental principle that the Old Testament, in one of its major purposes, is to point to the Messiah and give the identification marks of who that will be so that when he appeared, he would be recognized. So beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the scriptures point to Jesus from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. I pointed out that the term Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning the anointed one or appointed one, and it could refer to a human figure such as a priest or a king, and it could refer to uh, others that were not even Jewish who God had appointed to a task such as Cyrus. And so it also had referred to Satan before his fall as the anointed cherub who covered. He was the closest to the throne of God among the angels. So we're looking at these prophecies, the prophecies that were given in the Torah, the law. That would be Genesis through Deuteronomy. And last time I just got through Genesis because of we were short of time because of our Christmas dinner afterwards, and it was also Communion Sunday. And so we'll look at one more from the law this morning, and then the prophets, and then what is called the Nevi'im. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the Ketuvim, the writings. And the writings include some books that you think of as prophets, like Daniel. But Daniel didn't have the role of a prophet. He was the second or third highest in two different kingdoms, in Babylon and in uh, Persia. But he um, he wrote, he had the gift of prophecy. So his book is always included in the writings, not in the prophets. Chronicles, which we'll look at uh, also this morning, is uh, is part of the writings. So that's what we're looking at. We started off last time looking at the Proto-Evangelium, the first uh, uh, first indication of the uh, of the good news of salvation that God would solve the problem of sin. And in Genesis 3:15, as He is outlining to the serpent, and then to the woman, and then to the man the consequences of their sinful disobedience to him. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the word seed that is the English word that is used there comes from a Hebrew word, zerah, which has the idea of a descendant or a descendant's Plural. It is what's known as a collective noun, and it can refer to one or it can refer to many, much as our English word deer can refer to one or, or many. So it's called a collective, a collective noun. You have to look at the context to see if it's singular or plural. So in this one word, this one phrase, it's not only indicating one descendant, a single descendant, and because of the fact that it uses the third person singular pronoun, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is that third person singular that tells us he's not talking about a group. He is talking about the individual. The seed of the woman is the coming redeemer and deliverer who will solve uh, solve the sin problem. 
So these are important things to uh, observe. Then we went from there and we looked at a prophecy from Noah. After he had gotten drunk, his sons had uh, disrespected him, or his one son, Ham, had disrespected him. The other two respected him and covered him up because he was naked and passed out in his tent. And then he makes this little prophecy that is really a critical thing to understand in terms of world history. Very few people go back to this. It's short. It's brief. You can't pack too much into it, but it gives us an overall scope of history. He says something about Japheth. The three sons of Noah were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. He says, may God enlarge Japheth. So that Japheth and his descendants are going to be those that have a, a, a great impact. It has to do with, uh, with their prosperity, not just their numbers, but the impact. And those who are descendants of Japheth are those that uh, came from Noah's descendants and they migrated to the northwest, to Europe, uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, maybe a few other places in, uh, for example, the Persians uh, come from Japheth, and that would be the modern-day Iranians, as well as uh, many in India. Uh, so those are all the groups that descended from Japheth. And then you have the descendants of Ham. Descendants of Ham migrated to the uh, coming off the ark in uh, Ararat in modern Turkey. They went to the south and uh, southwest. They went to Africa. They went east. They went into uh, Asia. And so those are the descendants of Ham. And then the third group are the descendants of Shem. That would include both the Arabs and the various uh, uh, Arab tribes scattered in North Africa and Arabia and some other places. And then you have the uh, Israelites, the Jews, they were all descendants of Shem. And God, um, I mean, and Noah makes this statement. He says, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And I pointed this out last time. I had not taught it this way in the past, and I just came to an understanding of this in the last uh, couple of weeks, that it's typically translated with a lowercase he, but I think it should be translated as an uppercase he, because when you look at the term for dwell, dwell in the tents of Shem, and this is talking about God dwelling in the tents of Shem. Dwell is the Hebrew word shakan. It comes over into Greek as skene. Skene is the word that is used in John uh, 1.14, that the word that is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ in the introduction to John's gospel the word became flesh and dwelt among us, skene. And so this is a prediction of the Messiah that he will dwell in the tents of Shem, which was fulfilled by Jesus. So you go from Adam to Noah to through Shem. The messianic line is not going to go through Ham. It's not going to go through Japheth. It's going to go through, uh, go through Shem. And then uh, I just briefly mentioned the Abrahamic covenant, that it is through Abraham, a descendant of Shem. So the line narrows, and the Abrahamic covenant promised that the descendants, the seed of Abraham, would provide a worldwide blessing that would come through the Messiah. And then you have Abraham, you have his son Isaac, you have his grandson uh, Jacob, and his great-great-grandson Judah. And as Jacob is about to die, he gathers his sons in front of him, and he gives a prophecy about each one. And when he came to Judah, he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is a symbol of rulership, of kingship. And he says, Nor a lawgiver from between his feet. And then it says, until Shiloh, and I pointed out last time, that is capitalized as if it's a name, but there is a, a town in Israel called Shiloh. That's where the temple was for over 300 years, I mean the tabernacle was for over 300 years. But it's spelled similarly to this word, but not exactly. There's one letter difference. Uh, Shiloh is, um, has been excavated now for the last several years, and I'm hoping we can go there on our trip next summer. Um, 
the word as it is used in passages in Ezekiel are translated as he whose right it is. Now, the first time I ran across that was about 30 years ago, and you really had to dig to find information on that. And I noticed that the other day as I was working with my current edition of Logos on my iPad, that when I put the cursor on and clicked on the word, selected the word for Shiloh, the, it comes up and it tells you what the root is, the lemma, and then it tells you what the gloss is. And the gloss is usually not, may not be the exact way you would translate it, but it gives you the main idea of the word. And the gloss it, that they have is, he whose right it is. That, you couldn't find that 30 years, that information 30 years ago. Now that has become uh, well understood. So a lot of people think of Shiloh as a name for the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is not. It means until he whose right it is, it's messianic, right it is comes. So he's identified as a ruler that comes from Judah and, uh, and the people will obey him. So what we saw last time was Genesis 5 traces the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Genesis 9 and Genesis 11 take us from Noah through Shem to Abram. And then in Genesis 12 to 50, Abram to Judah. So the line of the seed. See the whole angle there where it spreads out is the mass of humanity. But the, but the line of the seed is laid out in Genesis. Now we come to the um, second to last book in the Pentateuch in, in Numbers. And this is a really sort of bizarre sort of incidence that we see covered in Numbers 22 to 24. And this is the scenario where the king of Moab, uh, Balak, it sees the Israelites, they, they're coming around the southern part of what is now Israel, what was the promised land then. And even though God had directed them not to attack their cousins, the Moabites or the Edomites, uh, Balak is insecure and feels threatened because of their numbers. And so he wants uh, to somehow have them cursed. He's a pagan. He's thinking in terms of some magical juju, black magic kind of curse that will uh, cut them down. And there is this Gentile prophet that is uh, over in Mesopotamia and has gained some fame, and his name is Balaam. And so he sends his messengers with a load of money to bribe him to come and to uh, curse Israel. And Balaam uh, is told by God. God uh, God speaks to Balaam, and uh, he said because he told him he said he said I need to consult Yahweh. So he used Yahweh. He didn't say Elohim. He didn't say Adonai. He uses the name Yahweh, and so it's very likely that he is he is a believer, but he is not knowledgeable, not walking with the Lord. He's acting more like a pagan prophet than uh, one of God's uh, prophets. And God says, first of all, God said, you can't go. But he kept begging and whining. And so God said, okay, you can go, but you can't say anything negative about Israel. In fact, you can't say anything unless I give you you my permission uh, first of all. And so uh, he goes. And three times he has a uh, statement that he makes about Israel, and every one of those three are a blessing, and that just drove Balak nuts because he can't. He wants them cursed so that he can have have um, uh, victory. And this passage in Numbers twenty four seventeen is an extra vision that God gave to Balaam, and I retranslated the uh, part of it. And it reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shatter the side of Moab's head. What does that remind you of? That reminds you of the statement in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent will... Uh, crush the heel of the 
uh, seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush his head. So it, it recalls that, that statement. And also the line before that, the scepter shall rise out of Israel. What does that remind you of? That reminds you of the prophecy of, of uh, Jacob over Judah that we just looked at in Genesis 49, that uh, the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. And so this particular prophecy picks up the ideas of, of Genesis 3.15, picks up the ideas in Genesis uh, 49, and adds something to this, and that is the uh, prophecy related to the star and identifying this star and the scepter uh, with the one who is com- to come but hasn't come yet, still in, uh, still in the far distance. So this prophecy foretells the future power uh, of Israel over Moab and Edom, that Moab and Edom will eventually be defeated by Israel. But that, even though some have seen in short-term uh, conquests of Israel over Moab and Edom, they, they don't fulfill this prophecy because they were just, just uh, temporary victories. Uh, the prophecy really focuses on the end times, uh, when we look at the passage uh, in verse 14, and now indeed I am going to my people, come I will advise you what this people, that is Israel, will do to your people, Moab, in when? In the latter days. So this is talking about end times. You know, you have to be careful when you interpret Scripture. Last days, latter times, there's latter days and last times for Israel, and there's latter days and last times for the church age. You always have to distinguish which is being discussed. And so here this is talking about uh, the time period uh, eventually at the end of the future seven-year tribulation. And so he is talking about this, uh, that this prophecy is not going to be fulfilled until you get to some time in the future. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. It's a, a, a long way off. It's in the, it's in the latter, latter days. So in this section, what he does is he declares that a scepter, a ruler, and a star... Now, it's not clear if he really understood or is talking about a physical star or is talking about some sort of celebrity. You see, even in the ancient world, somebody who was well-known might would have been identified as a star. We talk about the stars of Hollywood all the time. We talk about uh, athletic stars. We talk about stars in business. So it's a term for somebody who is... Uh, well-known and has distinguished themselves because of their accomplishments. And it also has the meaning of a literal star. So I think it's one of those times in Scripture where you have the use of double entendre, and he is using one word that's going to be used in two different ways. It refers to this one that is coming, who is a distinctive ruler, and the real star, and the Messiah is the star of all history. And it is also talking about the fact that there will be a physical star that will appear, uh, as we'll see at the time of his of his birth. And so this this passage is a passage that focuses on uh, that that future uh, event that will that will come. So I'm going to skip down here to a later fulfillment a passage that's not a later fulfillment, but what it does is it expands on this defeat of Edom and Moab. And this is from Amos, uh, Amos chapter 9, uh, verse 11 and 12. And Amos is a negative book. It's written about the same time as Isaiah, 7th century, and most of it is talking about judgment. But you come to the end of Amos, and it is... Uh, these are the only verses that really give hope to Israel. And he says, On that day, a term that is referring to the future day of the Lord, On that day I will raise up 
And most translations will say a tent or a booth of David. And the word that is used, though, is a word that indicates a temporary shelter. But it is a shelter that provides uh, uh, shelter for a group of people, something that will protect them. And so it is. he talks about this booth, this temporary shelter of David. Now, see, David's kingship was the high watermark in the history of Israel. And the people were, had defeated all of the, their enemies under David. It was a time of prosperity. It was a time when they were protected from various problems, from criminality to external enemies. And he says that this temporary shelter has fallen down. The house of David fell down. It collapsed. When did that happen? It began to happen when the uh, under his, David's grandson, Rehoboam, that there was a tax revolt by the ten tribes in the north, and Jeroboam was their leader, and Jeroboam went to Rehoboam and said, you're, you're taxing us too much. So Rehoboam went to his counselors, and his counselors said, well, let's just increase our taxes even more. And so they did, and the ten northern tribes said, okay, we're out of here, and they had a civil war and split. You have the northern kingdom, uh, ten tribes in the north, and the two tribes uh, of Judah and Benjamin in, in the south. And so the house of David, in terms of its protection, began to fall apart at that time, and eventually uh, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom uh, were defeated by their enemies. But the prophecy here is that he will repair the, their broken places and will raise up its ruins and rebuild her as in the days of old. Now, I've corrected the translation there because in the English it says, uh, I'll repair its broken places. But it in English, we have, we have three basic pronouns we use. We use he, which should only refer to words that have a masculine connotation or gender. Gender is a grammatical term, and it has been co-opted by the extremists on the left to refer to someone's sexual identity. But that's wrong. Gender is a grammatical term. You, you, if you study a language like German that is inflected, English isn't that inflected. You look at, you look at German. The word for window... Can you think of what sexual identity a window would have? It's feminine. You know, it's a grammatical term. It has nothing to do with sexual identity. You, you look at a young woman. A young woman is a Fraulein. That's a, that's a neuter noun. Well, I've never seen a young adolescent woman that was neuter. So you have words that have masculine, feminine, or neuter gender in grammar, and the word for booth is a feminine noun. But the pronoun that is used in broken places is a plural, masculine. So it can't be referring back to the booth. It has to refer to David. Okay, so repair their broken places, talking about the house of David. I will raise up its ruins. Now, when you have the word it's there, um, or excuse me, the first is their broken places. That's the breakup of the nation in two. I got, got that uh, slightly off. And then the, uh, his ruins, it's not its ruins. It's a masculine singular pronoun. And this is referring to the Messiah, the second David, because it can't refer to the first David because the first David's dead. He's been dead for two or three hundred years by the, the time this is written. So that second pronoun uh, refers to, uh, in terms of his ruins, that refers to David. And then at the end it says, and rebuild her. That's a feminine singular. Uh, feminine singular, that should be 3FS, 3FS not 2FS. Uh, rebuild her as in the days of old. So that then is feminine, and that refers back to the shelter, the booth of David. So when this is correctly understood, it's extremely messianic. And the result of what happens when the house of David is restored by the Messiah is given in verse 12. 
that they may possess the remnant of Edom. That is when the ultimate defeat by Israel of Moab and Edom uh, takes place. And so this is at the end times when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, returns at the second coming. So uh, what we have seen here is the seed of the woman being traced. We have Genesis 5 and 11 are the genealogies. Genesis 9, the prophecy by Noah, uh, gives us Adam to Noah, Noah to Shem, to Abraham. Genesis 12 through 50 traces it from uh, Abraham to Judah. Then the two passages we just looked at, Numbers 24, 14, and 17, and Amos 9, 24 to 25, connect the star and the scepter uh, from Judah and the future restoration of the house of David. But, well, wait a minute. We haven't really talked about the house of David yet because that comes between uh, Numbers and Amos, but those two go together. So we'll get, have to go back and look at Second Chronicles 7, 10-14, which talks about the Davidic covenant. Now, Chronicles was not part of the Torah, and it's not part of the prophets, the Nevi'im. It was part of the writings. And in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles come at the end of the Old Testament. They're part of, part of the writings. So we go to... First uh, Chronicles 17:10 through 14, and this is a passage that focuses on God's covenant with David. And he, God is speaking, or excuse me, Nathan the prophet is speaking to David, and he says, "Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house." Now, the context of this is that David wants to build a palace for himself, and God says, uh, or, "And." Um, Excuse me, David wants to build the temple. And God says, No, 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 you don't need to build a, you're not going to build a house for me. But what you are going to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a house for you. Now he says that the reason he's not going to have David build the temple is confused a lot of people over the years. And he says, um, and people, I mean, God says to David, you're a man of war, so you're not going to build a temple. And the way it comes across is, well, because you've been a man of war, uh, you're not allowed to, to uh, build a temple as if war was wrong, but the wars were all wars that were authorized by God. So what's going on there? God's purpose for David was as a warrior king who is going to bring peace to Israel. It wasn't to build a temple. That was the purpose for Solomon was to build the temple. So he has these these two different purposes for uh, David and then for his son. And in the Davidic covenant, he, God says, I will build you a house, and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed. There's that word again. I will set up your seed after you. And this is really talking about his descendants, the line of the kingship. I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons. Well, wait a minute. Who is singular? So that means that the seed there is singular. So he's talking about the Messiah. He says, I will set up your seed, talking about the individual because it's a who pronoun that is singular, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his masculine singular pronoun. I will establish his kingdom. So God promises him a house. He promises him a kingdom. And he says he, again, third person, masculine, singular, he, this singular individual called the seed, he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. So what is God promising him? A house, that is a dynasty. He is promising a kingdom and he is promising a, a throne. And then God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take his mercy away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. That's referring to Saul. And I will establish him in my house and my kingdom forever, and the throne shall be established forever. So the Davidic covenant promises an eternal house or dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, that's critical to understand the Davidic covenant because as you go through the line from Adam to Noah to 
Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Judah, to David, who is uh, from the house of Judah. David was born and grew up in the little village of Bethlehem. And so you have to understand that Davidic background now because the line is narrowed to being a descendant of David. And so there is going to be something special to signify that this, and this is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, I hope you can turn there with me in your Bible because this is important and it's really dependent upon understanding uh, some grammar. In English, the word you, Y-O-U, can refer to a singular you or a plural you. People in the South distinguish it by saying y'all. You is singular and y'all is plural. And all y'all is the plural of (laughs) y'all. But that's important here because you have to know to whom God is speaking when he says you in this passage. And it's interesting how many uh, knowledgeable Hebrew scholars miss the significance of that in this passage. Okay, so it is an important passage. Isaiah uh, chapter 7 begins a section in Isaiah that is referred to as the book of Emmanuel. Chapters 7 through 12 are part of the book of Emmanuel because three times, once in 7, once in 8, and once in 9, it mentions the future Messiah that he will be known as Emmanuel. I am in Hebrew is the preposition with. When you have with us, it's Emmanuel, that in you is your um, first person plural suffix. And L is God. So it literally means God with us. Okay? So the this future Messiah is going to be called God with us, indicating it is the incarnation of God. And this will be marked by the virgin birth. That is the sign. But there's a lot that goes on here. And I I've taught through this in previous uh, messages in in a lot of detail, but we're just going to sort of hit the high points here as we go along. This is a prophecy that is given to King Ahaz, and we get that from the context back in verse verses 1 and 2. We're told what the context is. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, in the Hebrew it's Ratzin, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. It's interesting that Pekah is mostly referred to simply as the son of Remaliah. He's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And see, uh, uh, Pekah and Rezin want to, want to be somebody. And so they're sort of minimized in, in God's eyes here because they're, they want to be important, but they're really not. And so these guys have gotten together and, and entered into an alliance. Historically, Syria has been an enemy of the northern kingdom, but they have a common enemy now. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my, still my enemy, so maybe my other enemy will be my friend. So you have uh, this situation where the Assyrians, not, it's not Syria, it is Assyrians, are coming down from Nineveh. They're crossing over the Fertile Crescent and coming down from the north, and they are the major military uh, threat at this time. And the date here is approximately 734 B.C., and it's 12 years before Assyria will wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. So, so they, they feel that threat. Well, the Syrians, or Arameans as they're sometimes called, uh, just north of Israel are also under threat. And so since uh, uh, the Assyrians are a threat to both Israel and, uh, and Syria, they've decided to lay their weapons against each other down, and they're going to join forces to fight off the Assyrians. But they know that even between them, 
they don't have enough weapons, they don't have enough, uh, their army's not big enough, uh, they can't take it on. So they go to uh, Ahaz in Judah to say, you need to join us so that we can, we can defend ourselves against Assyria. But Ahaz is always wanting, already wanting to make a side deal with the Assyrians, hoping he'll get out without a fight, and so he won't join their alliance. And that really angers them, so they enter into this uh, conspiratorial assassination plot, and what they want to do is make war against Jerusalem and Judea and um, uh, so that they can depose Ahaz and put their own puppet king on the throne of Judah, and that that will then lead to an alliance and they can defeat the Assyrians. Uh, but But the problem is that this is not just a threat to Ahaz and, uh, and Judah, but this is a threat to the house of David. This is a threat to the Davidic covenant we just looked at. This is because Ahaz is a descendant of David. He may be an evil pagan king, but he is still a descendant of David on David's throne in, in Jerusalem, and it is under threat. And so uh, the word gets to... Ahaz, he is the one on the throne for the house of David. It was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. The northern kingdom is also called the Ephraim because uh, Jeroboam I was an Ephraimite. So uh, his heart, that is Ahaz's heart in the heart of his people, were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In other words, they're shaking in their boots. They are fearful because they know that an alliance of of, uh, the northern kingdom with with Damascus and Syria can easily lead to their defeat. So the Lord is going to give Ahaz a message to give him a little confidence. So the Lord goes to Isaiah, the prophet, and says, Go out and meet Ahaz. You and your son share Yashub. At the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. So some of you have been to Israel with me. We have walked through the uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel, which was uh, built after this. And, uh, or, excuse me, it's built, built, um, it's built, af- yeah, it's built after this. We've walked through that. And so Ahaz is, what it's saying here is Ahaz is inspecting their defenses and how they're going to get water into uh, into Jerusalem when it's under siege. And so while he is inspecting the defenses, Isaiah is going to confront him. And Isaiah gives him a message. He tells him uh, several things. He tells him, first of all, he says, and these are all singular commands. It's important to recognize this. It's all addressed specifically to Ahaz. He says, take heed, be watchful, be on the alert, because uh, you need to be ready for what is going to happen and be quiet what he means by be quiet is don't try to solve the problem yourself Uh, it's in other places it would be stated be still and watch the deliverance of the lord but here it's stated as be quiet third he says don't be afraid and all of his experience is telling him to be fearful and god often tells us don't be afraid See, don't be ruled by your experience, by your emotions. Be ruled by the truth of the Lord. Uh, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, or be faint-hearted. Uh, don't cower in your boots. For these two, and I love, God is so insulting of people. Stubs of smoking firebrands. That's like somebody who smoked a cigar or a cigarette and puts it out, and all that's left is a few little embers and, and smoke. They're nothing. They're not going to burn anything down. Two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. See, he's so insulting to Pika. He doesn't even mention his name. He's the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of uh, Tabel. Actually, uh, the term son of Tabel, Tabel, uh, Tabel means a son of slaughter. It's a, the, the Isaiah is 
and God love to use puns to make a point. And instead of calling him by his actual name, they, he call, he just drops out a vowel, and it's the son of slaughter. He's going to bring slaughter upon themselves. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand. This is his message of, to give Ahaz confidence. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. Damascus was the capital of Syria, which is where uh, the king lived. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. Now, this is really interesting because this prophecy is saying that in 65 years, uh, Israel's not even going to be in existence. And that's exactly what happened uh, within the 65 years. The date of this meeting with Ahaz is about 734 B.C. Twelve years later in 722, Assyria destroys the kingdom. And then it is 53 years later, exactly 65 years after the prophecy, that under Ashurbanipal, then the king of Assyria, is going to institute a policy where they take native peoples that they have conquered and they are going to deport, depart, deport them from their uh, historic homeland and scatter them amongst the Assyrian Empire so they can't get together and start a revolt against him. And that occurred in 669 B.C., exactly 65 years after this this prophecy. So this is the confidence that he's giving uh, Ahaz. And so then the Lord speaks to Ahaz. This is going to reveal Ahaz's uh, hypocrisy. He says, ask, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Either in the depth is from Sheol to heaven. Anything you can think of is what the idiom means. Anything you can think of. I don't care how uh, impossible you think it is. I don't care uh, how difficult. You just name the miracle and I'll do it. I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz, in his fake humility, says, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to test the Lord. And then this is the guy who sacrificed his uh, uh, living child on the fiery arms of Molech as a burnt offering. Okay, so he's a major hypocrite here. And nevertheless, God's going to give him a sign. That's the context for this prophecy. And so God said, listen up, house of David. So who's he addressing now? House of David. That's a plural concept. Prior to this, these, these pronouns have been, uh, that are addressed to Ahaz have been singular. He said, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary me? But will you weary my God also? This is uh, Isaiah talking, of course, words of God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask me for one? I'm going to give you a sign. And the nature is a miraculous uh, miraculous sign. And uh, we know that from the way it's used in a couple of other similar passages. So, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign is something that is abnormal. It's not something normal. It's not something you're going to see. It's something that is absolutely distinctive because it's making a unique point. So those who come along and they'll make the argument that the word the word Alma here, the Hebrew word for virgin, really doesn't mean virgin. It can just mean a young woman. Well, that's not true. You have to look at all the uses of Alma. There's uh, about six of them in other places in the Scripture. And the context of every one of them is this is a young lady who has just reached marriageable age. She's just gone through puberty and that she has not had relations uh, with any man. In fact, the rabbis who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, then the Septuagint, two or three hundred years before Jesus, before this was fulfilled, translated the word Alma with the Greek word Parthenon. Parthenos means a virgin in Greek. So they clearly understood that. And it wasn't until you get into the early second century, early 100s, that you have a Greek a revision of the Septuagint made by a Jewish 
scholar by the name of Aquila, and he changes it from Parthenon to just young woman. What's interesting is that's in the context of a uh, of the lead up to a second Jewish revolt. The first one was in 70. After that, the Pharisees basically had to uh, reorganize themselves, and so they come under a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva hated Christianity, so he came up with an alternate Messiah, and he called him uh, Bar Kokhba, which in Aramaic means the son of the star. So he's trying to make a case for this fake Messiah, and he calls him the son of the star, going back to Numbers uh, 24 that we looked at earlier, which tells us that it, the rabbis at that time clearly understood Numbers 24 to be talking about the Messiah. So he applies that uh, that to Bar, Bar Kokhba, and one of his buddies uh, in his group that's trying to rewrite the Hebrew Scriptures so that they are, lose their Messianic overtone is this guy Akila, And so he changes this from virgin to uh, just young woman. But the meaning of Alma is virgin. The meaning of Parthenos is virgin. So this is the prophecy. And so what is basically going on here is you have this shift to a plural, second person plural. O house of David, he's addressing this not to Ahaz, but to the lineage of David. It's a promise of their protection that they're not going to be deposed during this time. Hear now, O house of, of David, is it a small thing for y'all to weary me? Because outside of six in the line, uh, the rest of them, like Ahaz, are all uh, pretty pagan. Uh, will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, y'all, it's a second person plural, a sign. And the sign is the virgin, not a virgin. The virgin. Why has it got that definite article there? Because within the messianic interpretation of, of ancient Judaism, biblical Judaism, they understood that this is the woman who fulfills the seed of the woman prophecy of Genesis 3.15. The virgin, going back there. You know, women don't produce eggs. Men produce sperma, seeds. So when it's called the seed of the woman, that's really bizarre. And it's to get our attention that this is a unique birth, a unique conception. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So what we have seen here is, first of all, the prophecy of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. That is traced by Genesis 9 to go through the line of Shem, one of the three sons of Noah, goes to the line of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, then the line of Isaac and Jacob through Judah in Genesis 49 and Numbers 24, and then the star is indicated in Numbers 24, 17, and the future destruction of Edom by the Messiah and restoration of the house of David in Amos 9, 11, and 12. The line of David is emphasized in that passage as well as the covenant with David in 1 Chronicles 17, 10 to 14. And then we have the virgin birth in 7:14, Isaiah 7:14. The one that I haven't covered is where it's going to take place. It's going to take place in the city of David according to Micah 5, 2. Micah writes at the same time that Isaiah is writing, uh, 7th century B.C., but you, Bethlehem of Ephrath. Ephrath was one of the uh, first Israelites to settle there. So, yeah, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. It was a very small village in David's time and with our Lord. I saw a recent film on the life of Christ where Bethlehem was a lot larger than it probably was by a factor of ten. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. This is where the Messiah will be born, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That indicates he's eternal. So the one who is born in Bethlehem is also eternal. That indicates he is both God and man. So we add to our chart here, from Adam to Noah, Noah through Shem to Abraham, Abraham to Judah, then the prophecy about the star and the scepter from Judah, 
the restoration of the house of David in Amos 9, the Davidic covenant in 2 Chronicles 17:10 through 14, the virgin birth in Isaiah 7:14, and that he is born in Bethlehem. Eight specific prophecies we have touched on. That's the line of the seed, and we will see their fulfillments when we come back Christmas Day next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to follow these prophecies. These are eight of many that were precisely and literally fulfilled in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we know that he was the Messiah. The probabilities of all of those eight coming true in him are make it virtually impossible. But those were not all of the prophecies, and they were not the only ones related to his birth. So, Father, we have great confidence that we know that Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, is indeed uh, the God-man, the descendant of David, descendant of Abraham, descendant of Adam, as the genealogies indicate, and that he is the Messiah. So, Father, we thank you for this evidence that's given that that you have provided the Messiah, the one who will come to smash the head of Satan and the one who will have victory over sin and the one who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, that we might have everlasting life simply by trusting in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So, Father, we thank you for this, the encouragement that this gives us, the way it strengthens our faith and our confidence in what we believe. And we pray that you would make this clear to those who may have never uh, trusted in Christ as Savior, those who may never have had a clear understanding of the good news of Scripture, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And he is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. And so, Father, we pray that you would make this clear to anyone who's never trusted Christ as they listen to this message. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.